My name is Gina Apostle. I was born in Manila. And this story, Imeldific, is published in Juncture, a large-scale arts collaboration featuring stories, drawings, and songs. The book of stories and drawings based on these stories was published by Soft Skull and features Jonathan Lethem, Colson Whitehead, Carl Hancock Rux, and Jorge Pardo. The CD of story-based songs made by Pi Recordings features Vernon Reed, DJ Spooky, and Mike Ladd. Whenever people ask me about Imelda Marcos, the former first lady of the Philippines, they always ask about her shoes, and I always say... The shoes aren't an issue with the Filipinos. The big issue really are the murders and the deaths during her regime, the loss of the rule of law. Imeldific. It's been a long while since my mother has shopped on Via Veneto in Rome or Fifth Avenue in New York. She's taken a few side trips to Hong Kong, but that has never been satisfactory. Too many people there mistaking her for a maid. The last time she ended up in a fight with a vendor of fake Louis Vuitton bags when all she did was smell the lining of a traveling case. My mother's relationship with leather is sensory. She inhales and closes her eyes the way she does when she takes in the host, the body of Christ. In Hong Kong, the hawker had screeched, my mother scratched her, and they ended up in a rumble on Tai Tai Avenue until the police came and slapped my mother with a fine for disturbing the peace. It was about that time, I believe, that my mother a gun. She ended up a blind item in a gossip column in Manila, and she has never been back to Hong Kong. Anyway, she says, she longs for New York. The last time she saw Saks Fifth Avenue was when she and nine other devotees took the image of the Holy Child, El Nino himself, on a whirlwind religious pilgrimage from California to the East Coast, gathering donations in honor of the child, but using the money for travel expenses. Their real job was to deliver, at Journey's End, their city's holy statue to the furtive faithful in Manhattan. Ten of them, the remains of the blue ladies, dregs of the old order and trademark drag, arrived in time for the televised court trial whose justice was to astound the nation. With a plaster, almost life-size statue of the child in their midst, they sat behind their lady. They wore patent leather shoes and jacquard silk clothes, fanning themselves in unison at the Manhattan District Court, sighing like clockwork when their lady sighed. My mother made a point of whipping open her fan, which slashed the air like a vengeful rough chicken whenever the prosecution mentioned the word shoes, as if the sharp whir of her stenciled fan put the lawyers precisely in their place, in impierno. They all had their own rooms in hell. As far as I knew, my mother's notion of damnation was the absence of shopping on a long, winding street. Happily for the ladies, this was never the case in Manhattan. To me, she used to recall those times when during court recess and off days, she wandered the shops, sampling the wares of the world's largest democracy, her soul rippling in the fall breeze. And when she reached the store, its block-long territory, like a hamlet under military containment, it brandished its own flags, its name fastened like an epaulette, candid insignia, of world domination. My mother's heart would lift and tremble, imitating the subtle declensions of the store's wooden escalator, chug-chug rumble, that bore her away to the shoe department. Renewed and becalmed, she would return to court with a beatific air. Every day during the trial of the century, the ladies arrived with pomp and piety, befitting the retinue of a dethroned Catholic queen. It was my mother's role 
to carry the statue, a bedecked three-foot bundle. My mother was five-foot-one. She grunted as she hoisted her burden, tottering in Haines stockings and stiletto heels. The statue swayed and careened with an expression of cataleptic nausea. The sight bewildered the police. New Yorkers shook their heads. She earned a brief, merciless description in some amused, uncomprehending city rag. I certainly have no prejudice against primal worship or the power of obsessive compulsions. There is dignity, I have always thought, even in the grossest forms of passion, being as they are a matter of love, as St. Paul said in one way or the other to the Corinthians. But the daily spectacle of Wendy Soliman of the House of Frias, of a respectable, may I say, prominent family in the Philippines, reduced to cargo handler for the rich and famous, no matter how sacred the luggage. My heart weeps and bile rises, a blue onerous phlegm with an actual weight and matter, the liquid congested form of my recall. I sit moldering in this dim apartment, apportioning blame and regret to sundry moments, chewing on the past, my madeleine of rue and affliction. In my case, it is not smells or tactile pleasures on the tongue that recall domestic memories, but words, catcalls and jeers. Words recall my family's pathetic state. Blue ladies, that's who they were. A cordon of matrons who ascended to power on the basis of high school reunions, college friendships, and other homemade footpaths to affection. Were shopping sprees she was privileged to witness, trips to the Rue Montaigne in sprightly Parisian weather, and the occasional bauble her lady offered, a fake Rolex watch, pearl necklaces, Chanel number no. 5. My mother had her own businesses, modest as they were, but she dropped everything for friendship. Meldy, as she fondly called her, liked to have her along. Blue Lady, that was her exclusive club until the brutal forces of change reduced her to that unimaginative term, if I might say so myself, imeldific. I argue with the term. I am, of course, irrelevant, merely a watcher, a novelist without a publisher. I sit here annotating the past with fictional ruses, trying to fathom change a precarious occupation in a wild country. But I have my theses and notions just the same. Apart from the fact that it's ungrammatical, this loose usage of an adjectival suffix to form a proper yet very common noun, I do think it's an absent-minded, facile label for, an, for a flamboyant group, for a segment of society that may have origins even deeper than the modern root of its name. But here I grope in the dark, muddling into a misplaced, indecisive insight. I have these faint sibyl-like flutterings of understanding beneath my wing, clucking as I do among a miserable brood. Imaldific, definition, a solecism in itself, an adjective used more commonly as a noun. One, a criminally extravagant creature. Two, paronymous with that figure of parody itself, often a poor imitation of a more outrageous, better-shod beast. Three, a follower of the ways of the imaldific. Adjective. Ridiculous, feeble-headed megalomaniac, always posturing for posterity, also a moral world-class shopper, fetishist. That's what they called my mother even before her picture hit the tabloids, a maldific. In my mother's case, certain aspects and events must be threshed out before one accuses her of the crimes now placed prominently, pointedly, at her feet. When my mother returned from New York, she was flush with her lady's victory at America's Democratic courts. Not guilty, 
the jurors said, smiling at the phalanx of believers behind the lady. Not guilty, the papers in Manila declared in horror. Not guilty, yelled the millionaire cowboy defense lawyer, such a genius, such a gentleman, so my mother said, who all but chanted, yee-haw, smacking his heels in Manhattan District Court. And she thought her trials were over. Life would return to normal. John's to Singapore and Hong Kong and summer trips to Paris would resume. It was not for these, of course, that my mother had prayed additional novenas to St. Anthony, St. Peter, and St. Jude. None of these holy men were patron saints of window shoppers, after all. She had stayed in Manhattan out of old-fashioned loyalty. Her cohorts, with an understanding more agile and farsighted, soon deserted their lady and were now governors, congresswomen, and jewel magnets in the new order. Wendy Solimani Frias, a loyal woman, did hope for the best when she returned home. After the verdict, surely there must be rest. But she was sadly mistaken. She felt out of place in her own country. Her hairdo was out of fashion. Her chainmail bags and Italian coordinates, the kind Gina Lollobrigida wore when she traipsed around the country, photographing naked men and mountain people in a propaganda coup, and my mother's favored ocelot prints and trompe scarves from the 70s, all of these had a vaguely disreputable air. Her lady, still ever mournful and parading Cartier, was herself under house arrest, though she was allowed to live in a mansion. Now many of her supporters, including my mother, were banished to obscure lives in their own homes. And then everywhere there were these silly jokes about shoes. Who was it who said it was an accessory of the libido, secret weapon of the id? Not knowing a whit of Freud, my mother could have written a dissertation. And didn't Proust hint at its power over life and death in that scene of the red shoes and the Duchess of Guermont in his monumental novel about recalling the past? My mother would find an entire library, a whole vocabulary for her longing, if only she read the classics. Instead she said, so what? Every outfit needs a matching pair of shoes. She could find no connection, no soulful company in the new regime, full of witty pundits and scathing crusaders. I must believe she felt this as an existential lack. She felt at home only when shopping, when she met ladies like herself testing the insoles of size 5 Charles Jourdan, primping at the Christian Lacroix boutique at Roustan's. Only then did she feel her soul inflating, becoming again a palpable organ. Spirituality came through the senses, a Roman dispensation. Incense, tactility, the actual ingestion of a god. And so it was when she entered the halls of a shopping plaza or put on a brand new kid soft pump, how it snugly and warmly clasped her instep, her wishful calcaneal bone. It was only then that she felt the deep breathing of angels. Unfortunately, those moments were now few and far between, and in inferior shopping malls at that. My mother longed for the old times. You might say she fell into a funk, a newly emerging democracy malaise. Indai, she said in her visits to my pad in Manila. What's to become of this country, run by people with fat noses? Hasn't she heard of reconstruction, if not reconciliation? Until now she can barely say her name. My mother's main gripe against former president Cory Aquino had been that her nose was not aristocratic enough. She accuses me of minor infidelities, sank as I am in the morass of my own amusements. Why don't you write about it, Inda, if you really are a writer? Write about her sad life, the country's betrayals, the bad faith. Write about her need for an eye operation. She needs to consult her famous ophthalmologist in Manhattan, Manhattan. Inda, you are one of us. You're from her hometown. You must give her justice. Tell her story to the world. 
I understand it must have been with an almost stupefied glee that she read the news in the papers about the presidential elections, the booting out of old traitors, no doubt about it, and most of all, the return of her candidate, her winsome contender. The Imeldific herself was running for president while under house arrest. It said so in the news. Oh, my golly, my mother said in a tizzy, a haze of order. We're going back to old times. We're going again to gain power, shop at Harrods, eat at Manhattan restaurants. Oh, my golly, Indai, we are going back to the palace. Immediately when she heard about it, my mother, ever loyal Wendy Soliman, booked her ticket to Manila, took out her old scarves and battle attire, fastened a Rolex on her wrist, latched onto her neck the ten-strand string of baby South Sea pearls, and, with three maids, one a costurera and two just for laundry, rushed out to the capital. I saw it all happen. I saw the group reconverge, a bunch of ladies bent on adding to the rip in the ozone layer right above us, near Australia, as they spattered each other with clairol high and dry. There they were on television, arousing crowds, singing the old songs and waving flags carefully so that their batons didn't get caught in the high, suddenly emerging bouffant of the others, fellow resurrectees, a beaded gang, tap-tapping to the music and snug kid-soft pumps, clicking their heels to Charles Jordan, Ferragamo, the returning, the recidivist, the everlasting imeldifix. And what was I, a lowly daughter, simply watching as it happened? A cursed recluse, a doomed beast. I'm just a novelist without a point, a woman of words but not a single organza outfit. I may as well be tossed out of history, swallowed by time. And yet, I did not know how desperate they were, how fragile was their emancipation. I didn't know how deep the wound had gone. As I said, I saw it happen before my eyes. My mother and her band held their rally in a congested portion of the business district, a dancing, noisy celebration. It was all on TV. I barely heard the cat call, the single jeer amid the raucous crowd. Maybe the man, an unfortunate straggler at the sideshow, had had too much to drink, was simply an aimless, unemployed body. Or maybe he was, as the newspapers claimed, a political activist with an axe to grind. It doesn't matter now. When my mother heard his cry, she turned on him. I saw it, and gestured with her sequin bag. Then, it happened so fast you would not have known who had done it if you had not been a watching daughter. There was that blast at the crowd, a wild pop, a bullet whizzing through the air. It may have been that gun she had bought in Hong Kong to defend herself against hawkers of fake luxury goods. Who knows? As the papers tell it, Sequins were strewn and banners swayed, uncertain. She had taken the weapon out of her bag, a small lady like accoutrement, like her perfume sprays and mascara sticks, and without thinking, before you could say Bruno Mali, she had fired. It hit the straggler at the knee. It grazed the passing peasant peanut vendor. It startled an itinerant bird. Office workers, band musicians, newspaper boys, the maldifics themselves, beads on their gowns flying, scattered and stumbled and screamed. The straggler fell on the pavement. The TV announcer was beside herself, screeching into her mic, her fat cheeks stretching even more so in amazement in the frenetic keening of the moment. He's hit! He's down! It's a mob, ladies and gentlemen. It's a crime scene. It's a shooting gallery, ladies and gentlemen. And Imeldific is on the loose. Thus did the search begin. The manhunt for the Imeldific, with the matching shoes and sequin bag, a criminal in a floor-length satin dress. It's been debated whether she wore the trademark butterfly apparel or arrived in more common garb, Chanel imitation or such. In any case, in some corners, it's been declared. Height, 5'1". Aristocratic features. 
possibly carrying along with a gun, a rosary, and a little plastic bottle of holy water shaped in the blue-sashed image of Our Lady of Lourdes. It was a good story. Former blue lady, an erstwhile respectable trader, wearing Ferragamo U.S. size 5, European size 35B. Yes, it is she, Mrs. Wendy Soliman Ifrias Ikerov, as she lists herself in our family Bible. Gun-toting loyalist on the lamb. In the mad rush to take cover, find an ambulance, report the matter to the nearest gossip columnist, no one had thought to apprehend the ladies at the scene of the crime, and sure enough, the secret wielder of the gun disappeared. It might have remained a one-day sensation. The wounded kibitzer, the catcaller, survived after all. With a torn pair of jeans and constant replay of his near-fatal passing comments on various talk show programs, being all he had to show for his misfortune. But then, she struck again. A taxi driver from Pasig City, Metro Manila, near the mega mall where the new J.C. Penney was being built, reported a crime that occurred in broad daylight, right where construction was going on, of fresh window displays that would feature imported knit garments and made-in-China fashion bags. The driver claimed he was robbed at gunpoint by a perfumed lady in a satin outfit, who carried her weapon in a sequined purse. A maldific strikes again. It could have been a copycat crime. Even so, her composite was published in every tabloid. Her motives were explored in the morning shows. Soon it came to pass that taxi drivers wouldn't stop for women with bouffant hairdos. Offices of plastic surgeons were searched for signs of her alleged former selves. Her possible associates were interviewed and, at times, harassed. Certain shoe styles were belittled. And her myriad doppelgangers found themselves shunned at cultural events. She was the talk of the town and the curse of socialites, and yet, and all the feeding frenzy, no one thought to look in the more obvious places, the probable locus and platform, if I might use the word, of her fancy. Being a daughter, of course, apart from being a recluse, a fantasist, and a generally passive individual, I made no move until I was questioned. Mama, I wish to say, I did not squeal. You will be proud. I was no traitor. I was not the first cause of your arrest. The inspector came to my apartment a stinking man with a bad hairstyle, rice in his teeth, but wearing a wonderfully ironed uniform, rendered almost steel-like, shining, in its not-so-subtle application of starch. He came with his goons, henchmen in plain clothes, who looked all the more menacing and cynical in their casual lacosts. A large van stood in the driveway, a Mitsubishi Pajero with all the trimmings, mag wheels, tinted glass, a sacred heart of Jesus dangling figurine, along with the usual, though still thought-provoking, plush versions of Disney's seven dwarves swaying above their dashboard. Miss, he said, police. I opened the door. I nodded. Your mother, he said. Where's she? I shrugged my shoulders. She doesn't live here, I said. She lives in the province. I kept the door slightly shuttered, protecting my frame. She is under arrest. I looked at him as if misunderstanding. For criminal activities, gun shooting, assault, misdemeanor. Traffic violation. Traffic violation? He mumbled as he looked at his list. Mm, taxi hold up. I shrugged. Also, shoplifting. What? He nodded his head uncomprehendingly, as if this were the most damaging of all. Yes, miss. Shoplifting. A lady like that, eh? What is happening to the world? Putting the gun to the shop girl and taking a genuine leather belt from the lockup display. The policeman shook his head. She's good. The man touched his porcine chin, feeling the fine gristle, musing on his nose. They could not catch. 
He squinted his eyes as if admiring. Professional. She's not here, I said. You can come inside and look. The men came into my apartment, wandering idly around, touching my books, my manuscripts, my computer and typewriting chair, handling matter only but their guns, as if their natural limbs had lost their faculties for feeling, and only the machines had any weight, any psychic and notional possibilities. They were an ugly, bumbling sight. And when they left, I touched each of my possessions, my desks and papers, my bookcases and pens, laying my hands on each as if to ward off tragedy, to air the malign spirits out of them, renew them with my own body, with the heat of my love. Anyone should have known where to go, where one should wait and apprehend. I strolled out there one afternoon, first taking a taxi. As I sat in the cab and the driver, talkative as they usually are, regaled me with his opinions of the news of the day, I recognized what may have happened. Three thousand pairs, the man at the rally must have yelled, the wounded kibitzer. Give me one of them shoes, he then must have cried, a civic person with a sense of justice, after all. It was a misfortune like any other, getting gored by a bull, passing beneath an avalanche, that the man came under the rampaging radius of my mother, who, having in her short lifetime gone through a harrowing seesaw of power and downfall, victory and pain, had lashed out in an understandable, though not pardonable way. At the jeering note of the word shoes, I realized as I rode the taxi, my cab driver mouthing off on his own demons and common man heartache, it was at that point my mother went off her rocker, juramentado, loss of judgment at the sound of a word, the anti-Proust moment, when memory shatters one instead of making one whole, when the substance of our past is bitter instead of sweet, and the sum of our pleasure in the end is what destroys us. To understand all is to pardon all, to comprendre c'est tout pardonner. I must confess that is not my principle as a daughter. But it was a note that did strike me as we approached my destination. I tipped the man handsomely for his harangue on the dictatorship in Indonesia that caused even more pollution in Manila, on the fall of the peso or the rise in emerging democracies of movie star politicians. There were any number of topics. I climbed the steps to the gilded store. A man in the spiffy white uniform of a luxury hotel clerk pushed open the door. I was met with a blooming scent of bottled flowers. Jasmine, hyacinth, magnolia. I felt giddy with the glamour of the place, the glass-top glory, gleaming chandeliers. The store had become even grander, enlarged and improved, in our erstwhile small cub, tigerish economy. I moved past jaded, over-made-up, yet slightly sympathetic salesgirls at Estee Lauder, past the adroit, jacquard-suited lady testing lipstick on her gold-chained wrist, up the escalator where I stood by a woman carrying shopping bags bursting with gilt-edged gar garments and alligator shoes past the ogres and guardsmen of the circles, until I reached the third floor, lady shoe section, where I knew I'd find her if I stayed long enough, and this calm, soigné sanctuary at Roustan's, between Ferragamo and Parisienne, where my mother rests her soul. Later, much later, when my duplicity had not been lost on anyone, though I still hoped my mother had her doubts, I visited her at Makati City Women's Jail. The barrage of reporters had died down. It was a presidential election year, after all. And the lone keeper of the cell was a pert girl in shorts. Ah, you want madame, Doña Wendy? The girl said cheerfully, rattling the keys as she stood to unlock the door and let me in. Oberdale. Other girls had come out to peer at me, the new arrival. 
They looked like perky prostitutes or pencil-thin drug dependents who, if they took care of their skin a bit more, could be contenders for a photo layout of a nice jeans ad, teenage girls and strung-out women comfortable, even domestically placid in this environment. I felt a low blow, a glancing hurt in me to think of her in their midst. I was, after all, still a daughter. It was, as you might suspect, at Rustan's department store that they had found my mother at last, on a subtle hint from an anonymous caller. They had nabbed her on the final week of the sale for shoes in petite sizes. Her picture stared at you from the tabloid, unaware of the hidden cameras. A faintly sasser dawdle, even blissful look, as she examined a pump in the new square-toe style. Her arrest had been a grand slam for the police department and a success in a democracy. But now I felt cowed by my complicity, my share in this ruin, her place in this rather clean cage amid slightly off-putting, congenial girls. I was led past the roused criminals, some smoking almost with an intellectual air, their alarmingly alert gaze, to a room beyond them. Beyond their spell of humid, terse furnishings, which my eyes carefully avoided, and there in a square, unpainted room dominated by a ping-pong table, I found her. You could easily tell it was her domain. A statue of the holy child stood in the middle of the table, where the net should have been. He looked, as they say, like a rhinestone linesman. My mother sat in a corner, plumped up by pillows. She didn't look a day beyond those times long ago in Manhattan. She was dressed to the nines in matching suit and faux pearls, but her stockinged feet were unshod. She was getting her nails done by a woman whose perm was so new or potent that one could still smell its medicinal stench. The smell of perm and acetone hung over my visit like a guardian spirit. Visitor, madame, the girl with the keys announced. In die, my mother said from her corner, looking up at me. She was perfectly made up, muscarid, cliniqued, foundation creamed, blooming, and her manicurist, like an ancient Egyptian slave, bent over her phalanges with an ardent gaze. You came! I hesitated, not knowing the protocol of her new life. Josephine, this is my daughter, my mother said to the obeisant girl. Another girl came in with a can of hairspray. It seemed that Contrary to all narrative expectation, it was here that my mother had found her spiritual companions. To this girl, too, my mother pointed me out, loudly proclaiming, Antoinette, that is she. That's my daughter. Tell her. Tell her the story of your life, Antoinette. Listen, Indai, a tale of injustice. She just wrote a check. That's all. She was forced to do it. She's innocent, wrongly accused, just like me. Tell her your story, Antoinette. My daughter's a writer. She's a journalist. Antoinette nodded at me shyly and started to pat at my mother's hair. She started to tease it in that familiar way. My mother touched the innocent check bouncer's arm. Don't worry. Don't worry, Antoinette. I will tell Meldy all about you. Then before I could speak, the gatekeeper came back with a pair of shoes, upright on her palms, patent leather, square-toed, held like an offering at mass. Madame, eto, we shine them for you. Slowly, methodically, in Antoinette's hands, my mother's hair was rising toward the heavens. Without moving her head, regally my mother reached out for the shoes. Fiction, ma. I write fiction. I corrected. As I watched her take the shoes, it was not the moment to rush over and kiss her. Without lowering her head or moving a wisp of her flying hairdo, keeping her other hand still for the Egyptian ladies' ministrations, my mother eased the new shoes on, expertly, blindly, with devotion. For those of you who want to know, there were classic pumps with a low heel.
To subscribe to the writer's block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org slash writer's block. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.